bit different today. I've been on a pastor search committee now for uh, a little over a year, and so I've literally reviewed hundreds, uh, about 300 statements of faith, um, people writing to explain what they believe. The pastor call was fairly conservative pastor's call because I wrote it. <laughs> and uh, so uh, what I found in reading these, uh, these statements of faith, both church websites and from pastors in, as individuals who had to respond to our call, was that a lot of them, there were there was about one in 20 were about heretics. And uh, some of them were accidental heretics, you know, that um, they, they try to they try to state the doctrine of the Trinity and then they would have difficulty. There's, a, there's one or two seminaries that <coughs> are unable to apparently communicate the doctrine of the Trinity to their students. And so they would make that mistake. But there's been, a, it, to me, it was much more troubling uh, when, they, when I saw this, uh, uh, an abandonment of the doctrine of hell and this, this abandonment of the doctrine of hell works backwards through their theology. And you can see it in a young man in which uh, he, we had one young person apply uh, who had decided to write page after page after page. He, he wrote his own confession of faith. Even though I asked, I pointed at a confession of faith which would have been appropriate, he wrote his own. And in reading through the, his confession of faith, he began to get shaky when he got to the cross, and when he got to the end, when he got to eschatology, when he got to hell, he failed completely. He fell away from hell. He did not have a biblical doctrine of hell. And so I want to, I want to teach about hell. You know, and nobody likes hell. I don't like to talk about hell. I think the church naturally doesn't want like to talk about hell. But what you find in any of these doctrines that we're uncomfortable with is the first thing we do is we stop talking about it, then we stop believing it, and then we start teaching against it. And so we have about one in twenty that have gotten to teaching against it at that point. So I want to start with Grudem Systematic Theology. If you don't have a copy of Grudem Systematic Theology, you should get one. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's a thick book, but it's written. You can almost use it like a catech- uh, for catechism. Does it come on Kindle? Sure, probably does. Grudem's Light, I think, is available. Okay. Yeah. And he has a different name. He doesn't call it Grudem's Light. We, that's what I mean, some of my friends call it. <laughs> but uh, it's a short version. It's uh, he, at the end of every chapter. He has a hymn. He has uh, medita- you know, verses for meditation and study questions. It's, just, it's a great book uh, for for study. And it's thick. Yes, it's thick. And so sometimes my class people in my class don't want it because it's thick. And I have, a, I have a CD version. Of yeah. Yeah. Now, what was it again? Grudem's. Grudem. Does it have pictures? It's, uh, <laughs> no, no pictures. It's about 130 lectures. He's still period. alive. He teaches Sunday school out in Phoenix. And I, hope to, I hope to listen to him speak sometime. But he's uh, very sound, very fair. The only time he's not real, 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 real fair is when he gets to eschatology, and I think he's doing some fights. And so it's hard to be fair when you've been in fights you know, <laughs> about premillennial and postmillennial and amillennial, and whether you're pre-med or post-trib. I think that's where that's where he has a little bit of trouble. And I, so I want to I want to go back to Grudem's definition. And Grudem's definition of uh, hell is it's a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. It's eternal. That means that it will never end. It's conscious. That means that the sinner will know what's going on. And it's punishment. God is the one punishing in hell. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's the wicked is any, anyone who's treasonous against the most high holy God of the universe. And all of us are treasonous if we've committed any sin. 
So if you committed any sin, you're guilty of treason against the perfect God. And I'm not going to go into a full exposition because it would take forever. Uh, I mean, it would take a few weeks to go through all the verses related to hell in the Bible. But I do want us to see that this is not an Old Testament concept. This is not, as some people say when they want to ignore biblical doctrine, a Pauline concept so we can, it's all Paul. No, this, is, this stretches from Genesis to Revelation. And, and Jesus says, uh, when he's talking about hell, he says, uh, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. On that, and that's Matthew 25, 46. Mm-hmm. And then Matthew 25, 41 says, on that day some will hear God say, depart from me, you cursed, into the ever- eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels, and his angels. So it's not, I mean, Jesus taught about hell a lot. It's not, it's not difficult to find Jesus teaching on hell. But uh, there are some lies that are really popular in culture. One of the lies we hear is that Satan will be in charge in hell. Well, that's rubbish. I mean, Satan's going to be way too busy in hell to pursue any hobbies at all. He will be punished eternally, justly punished for eternity. Satan's going to be way too busy. He's not in charge in hell. He's in hell being punished eternally for his sins. And then uh, that's the other thing that will lead you into a dualism. Uh, Satan is not on a par with God. Satan is not God's opposite. Satan is a created being. He will be punished for his sins for all eternity. So you don't want to fall into dualism either. And then uh, the other sin is a lot like that. Um, And I know Satan must like this one too, is that hell is just the absence of God's presence. And that's not true. Hell is... God's presence for correction, for discipline, for punishment for sin eternally. God will be present in hell. That's who's punishing Satan and the angels. Uh, He may use intermediaries, but he will be there uh, overseeing their punishment for eternity. So hell is not just the absence of God's presence. Satan can only wish that. You know, when we teach that, we're saying that, when we say that hell is the absence of God's presence, we're saying that hell will be heaven for Satan. Satan would love that. And so would the sinner. So you're not doing the sinner any any favors when you tell a sinner that uh, hell is the absence of God's presence. Because for many sinners, that sounds like heaven. They would love to have a place where God was not. That's what we want when we're rebellious. We would love to have a world where God did not exist, we think. But of course, uh, we wouldn't be able to live in that world either. So this heresy, I think, is finding so much traction in the church because it's a backflow from the emergent church. Uh, Certain fractions of the church uh, have rejected biblical doctrines that they find inconvenient or difficult to market. It's a a difficult thing to market. Nobody likes to market hell. And so often uh, someone who who has a non-biblical view of hell or is a heretic with regard to the view of hell uh, has marketing background. You know, a lot of pastors now have a marketing background. And... uh, that's almost a flag that you better read their statement of faith carefully because if you've got a marketing background, did you, you know, are you a Christian who has become you know, using the tools of marketing to preach the gospel or are you a marketer who's decided to apply those tools to Christianity? If you're a marketer who's brought it to Christianity, mm-hmm. be careful, be careful. In fact, one time I had a student come to me and they started the question off, they started the question off, well, we know that hell is just the absence of God's presence. And I stopped and said, no, we don't know that. Sinners in hell would give anything to be separate from God's presence for an instant. Because God's presence is there for judgment and for punishment. And I never found out what the question was because that wasn't the answer they were looking for. They went, to, they went on to 
talk about something else someplace else, and they left me at that point. Uh, we do talk about the presence of God in more than one way. And so when you're reading the Bible, you do have to realize that God uses uh, statements about his presence in various ways. One thing is he's omnipresent, so he's present everywhere. His, his presence is always there. His presence can be in a place to bless it. Like when we come together for church, God is here to bless. His presence could be there to correct. His presence could be here like it was with his Shekinah glory in the uh, temple, in which case we'd have to leave the house. You guys, I don't know what you'd do. You wouldn't be able to come home. <laughs> but uh, God uses this term of his presence in various different ways. And so uh, his presence to bless is, is, uh, is what we're most accustomed to. And in fact, Scripture uses it most often when it's talking about God's presence. It's talking about his presence to bless. Um, but then uh, his, the sinners are also enjoy God's common grace, his common blessing, in the orderly running in the universe. I always use the example that I'm thankful for every morning that water boils at the same temperature and my coffee's made the same way every day. And it just that's God's grace to make all of that work, but we don't acknowledge it. We think that that's the law of the universe. What's well, God's grace every morning? That uh, things work the same way. So we always want grace, uh, and we don't want the, uh, the, this punishment that God has given uh, in hell. And uh, we, you know, we had the, the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, and I, I remember when that happened, and the person uh, died at the end of it. The, the person who did this thing died at the end of it, and people were. Um, felt like just they'd been cheated of justice because he took his life at the end. No, he's receiving justice, and it's a horrible thing to think about. I mean, I don't even want to conceive of what he's going through. He's receiving perfect justice now, and mankind's justice is never perfect, not like God's. He's getting Mm -hmm. God's perfect justice now, and it's horrible to think through. He's perfectly just. God is perfectly just, And and, and yes, hell will be proportionate. (laughs) <laughs> Some people seem to find comfort in that, that hell will be proportionate. But it will still be eternal punishment by God for one, for any sin. Because, and, you know, we, we look at that and we think, well, is that really fair? You know, is that really right? And I know in me, I look at it and I say, is that right? But here I am, a sinner, judging the punishment that a perfect, infinite God deals out for sin. So is a little bit of, it's a little bit of treason why couldn't he overlook a little bit of treason? God will not. He cannot overlook treason. There will be no sin in hell. One of the striking things with regard to John the Baptist is when Jesus said about John the Baptist that there was no one on no one born of woman on earth has exceeded John the Baptist in his righteousness. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is more righteous than him. That I mean, the disciples should have just fallen down at that point. It's like, how can you say that? So if you were as righteous as John the Baptist, you would not want, you would not qualify for he- uh, heaven. John the Baptist had sins. Even if it was the only sin we see in Scripture for John the Baptist was that he wondered, was Jesus really Jesus, or was somebody else going to come? That was the only, that's the only thing, the only waiver in John the Baptist's life that we know about. But John the Baptist did not qualify for heaven apart from the work of Christ. Mm-hmm. So I never want one I deserve... I always want grace and mercy. How can God be perfectly just and let somebody like me in heaven? And it's the cross, and it's always Christ crucified that we preach. But if you deny the reality of hell, and you teach a false doctrine of hell, then what was Jesus doing on the cross? 
it gets corrupted. Your doctrine <coughs> of the cross becomes corrupted. And you, you, and you hear this. You hear these things said in the world around us today. You'll hear people talk about the cross, and they'll say, well, you know, remember the old thing? Uh, I asked Jesus how much he loved me, and he stretched out his arms and said this much, and he died. It's like, okay, that's okay. Yes, he died because he loves us, but he bore our punishment on the cross. It wasn't just an example for us to see. It wasn't just, he didn't just do it to show people how they should lay their lives down for other people. He did it to pay for our sins. The other unbiblical doctrine is, this is, I always call it C.S. Lewis's error, because if you read the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, the picture of Aslan there is not good uh, for soteriology, for the study of salvation, that's not a good picture. You should explain it to your kids when you read The Line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. Aslan is seen as giving himself as a ransom for the, the child that had sinned. Jesus was not a ransom. He was not a ransom to Satan for our sins. He bore the wrath of God for our sins. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's something that Lewis picked up from the early church fathers. C.S. Lewis loved to read the early church fathers. He was not a good theologian. Every once in a while you just have to face the fact that C.S. Lewis is not a great theologian. Uh, Tolkien managed to live with it, so I think we can too. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he irritated Tolkien. But so it is not a ransom from Satan. You, he bore the wrath of God for you, and you can't preach the gospel while denying what Christ did on the cross. You have to have an understanding of hell to understand the cross. Cross on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God for you. He bore the wrath of God upon the cross to pay for our sins. Uh, when he cried out, uh, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" He had lived with God's presence to bless and to support from the day he was born till that day on the cross when he died like you did, like you should have died. He bore that. He, he, he no longer had that supporting grace of God. The supporting presence of God was gone. The presence of God to punish was present. That was, that was the presence of God that he bore for us. He was dying the, he was dying the sins that we deserved. John Calvin commented about the Apostles' Creed. I don't know how long it's been since you read the Apostles' Creed, but uh, and it's not really the Apostles' Creed. It came about in the 300s or 400 A.D. And one of the later additions to it says that he descended into hell. And uh, Calvin, after making it very clear from Scripture that Jesus, there's no biblical evidence that Jesus descended into hell in the sense that the common understanding would be. Calvin said we should leave it the way it is because he descended into hell on the cross for us. We need to understand that when he was on the cross, he descended into hell. So Calvin argued that you leave the Apostles' Creed the way it is, or the way it was in 1600, you leave it that way, and you teach your congregation to understand that, that he descended into hell for you on the cross. When he bore the wrath of God, that was the hell you deserved. So you leave the Apostles' Creed alone, and you teach that, so you always remember it, so that when you repeat the Apostles' Creed every Sunday, which they did, that you would, every Sunday you would be reminded that he bore the wrath of God for you. So it was interesting. I thought that was interesting for somebody who's as picky as John Calvin who wanted to leave it the same way. He did not want to change it, even though it was technically it was a mistake. So he was poured out on him to atone for you as a child of, a child of God. In a fairly embarrassing episode for uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you know, we've got something we want you to do for us. When you come into your kingdom, we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand. What they were really asking was, we want to be deified with you. 
I mean, essentially, they were asking, make us gods when you become God. We want to sit on your right hand and your left hand. So Jesus says, you don't know what you're, you don't know what you're asking. You know, what else could he say to them? You guys don't know what you're talking about. You know, you don't know what you're asking. He says, are you able to drink the cu- of the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you able to bear the baptism that I'll be baptized with? And they, just like any one of us, said, oh, yeah. We can do that. <laughs> and I know Jesus just rolled his eyes. And he said, yeah, you will drink the cup. And you'll, you'll be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But I can't assign right and left position in the kingdom of heaven. And he went on. See, Jesus was pointing forward to that baptism that he was going to have on the cross. He was pointing back to that immersion in God's wrath that was going to come on the cross for him. When he was baptized by John the Baptist... It always reminds me, remember Babe Ruth came to the plate, and he would come to the plate and he would point over the fence. And he would hit the ball over the fence. And so for Jesus, he was, uh, he, that was, that in a capsule, when he was baptized by John the Baptist, in a, it was encapsulated the rest of his life in ministry. That was his life in ministry. It was not going to be the baptism of John. And that's, unfortunately, a lot of times when we baptize people, we seem to, we seem to fall back to John's baptism for cleansing. We forget that we're being baptized as a testimony in Christ. But Jesus was pointing forward to the baptism on the cross when he was baptized by John the Baptist. It was a point forward. Uh, in fact, Jesus said uh, at another time that uh, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Jesus was living his life looking forward to that baptism on the cross that he was going to bear for each of us. So he was always looking forward to that, um, to accomplish our salvation. So only vicariously, only in the, only because we are in him, did we pass through that baptism, did we drink the cup of God's wrath. We did it because Jesus did it for us. Only the God-man and some, a thousand years ago, showed us that only the God-man could do this thing for us. So he did it for us. And uh, Paul, in one of his... I can't believe you guys are confused about this statement. So if you're reading the epistles and Paul says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? It's, like, it's one of those things for Paul, when you're reading the epistles and you see Paul say, don't you, he's saying, don't, I can't believe you don't know this. What's the matter with you? Don't you remember this? This is the thing. We were baptized into Christ's death. Uh, so we were baptized into Christ's death 2,000 years ago on the cross. We were baptized into Christ's death. Uh, that's our testimony. It's the testimony of your, of your water baptism, as well. Why not use dirt instead of water? You ever like why do why do we get baptized if we're symbolizing Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? Why don't we just put a dirt clot on somebody's head, you know, or throw dirt on them, or or put them in a put them in a fake tomb and then roll the stone away and they, they come out? Or why do we use water? Well, it's because it's the symbol of God's wrath throughout Scripture. The water symbolizes God's wrath. There's only one verse in Scripture. Well, first I want to talk about the Didache. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Didache. It was, it was a real short document on how to have church written in the first or second century. For the teaching manual. Yeah, it's like a real quick. It's easy to copy and pass out to all the churches. So here's how you do it. it was a, here's how you do it real quick. It's not Scripture. And in fact, God in His sovereignty didn't let us have it back until the mid-19th century. It was... People knew it existed, had, knew it had existed. Everybody thought it was lost until some guy reading some book, uh, Greek, a Greek priest found, hey, look, 
I found it. So he found it in an old book. And uh, the Didache teaches uh, how to be baptized. And the first baptism is in living water. It's called living water. Uh, flowing water. First you should be baptized in flowing water. That's the first choice. So it should be a river. Second choice, a pool, like a, a lake. Third choice, indoor, indoors in a tub. So Baptists come in on the third choice. You know? <laughs> and then the fourth choice, if you can't do any of that, effusion or pouring. They never get down to sprinkling. Well, why? You know, why? Why does why does he pick flowing water first? Well, why did they pick flowing water first? Well, it suited the symbology, the symbol, symbolic purpose of baptism best. That was the, how you should be baptized. In fact, with me, they probably should have tied a rope around my leg and thrown me in the fastest rapids they could find, and then dragged me back out. You know, God. Yeah, I passed through God's. You know, in Jesus, God's wrath is satisfied for my life. In Jesus, God's wrath, wrath was satisfied. There's only one verse in the Bible that says, baptism corresponds to this, and it is not circumcision. You know, the, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters teach that baptism is the New Testament symbol of the covenant, and circumcision was the Old Testament symbol of the covenant with God. It, it, they both go both ways. I'll show you Old Testament. Bat, baptism goes into the Old Testament. Circumcision comes up into the New Testament in our hearts. We're finally circumcised the way we're supposed to be. Our hearts are circumcised. The flesh is to be cut off of our heart. It's First Peter three twenty through twenty two. Only verse that says this is what bat, this is what baptism corresponds to, and he's talking about um, Noah because they formerly did not obey. When God's presence waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, uh, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Noah, as a picture of Christ, took seven, the number of completeness, into the ark. He was a picture of Christ. Then he bore them through the wrath of God, the flood that covered the earth. So if you want to symbolize that with a little bit of water, okay, but it's a flood. It covered the earth. That's what we're symbolizing in baptism. That's the verse that says this is what, this is what baptism means because Christ bore the wrath of God. He was immersed in the wrath of God on the cross. That's the symbol. That's the symbols that we, needed to, we need to be conscious of. We see it repeated again with the children of Israel when they stood between their captors on one side, those who kept them in bondage, and the sea of God's wrath behind them. And there was no way out. There was no way for them. But God made a way where there was no way. And they went through the sea. There's their baptism. And you know, we should not find this complicated. Paul even, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This is not tricky stuff. This is, you know, it's not hidden symbol, symbols. This is in our face symbols. Yes, we, we see Moses lead the children of Israel through their baptism in the sea. In the cloud, the Holy Spirit as well. So, then again, if we haven't got it yet, God repeats it again with Jonah. Jonah, who, was, who had sinned and was running from God. The wrath of God was displayed in the sea, the storm he was in. 
And what does he do? He gets thrown into the sea, which is his just punishment. Jonah admits this is just punishment. What does God do? He swallows him up with a fish and delivers him from his just punishment of the sea. Now we all ride around with fish on the back of our car. Imagine the sovereignty of God, that he can work it out, that when we spell, or when the first century church in Greek spelled uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, it, meant it came out spelling fish. And now we all ride around with a fish on the back of our car as a symbol of salvation. How many times do we don't connect it to Jonah? Jonah, here's Jonah in the Old Testament in Hebrew. What's he got to do with Greek? Only a sovereign God could arrange for that to work forward into the, into the New Testament. It's just a beautiful thing to see. Everybody, and when you see a fish on the back of a car, think about Jonah and how he was delivered by Christ. I mean, here, the symbol of Christ is fish. Took Jonah and delivered him from the sea of God's wrath that was set for him. So Noah, Moses, Jonah all provided a picture of what Christ went through on the cross, this immersion in the wrath of God on the cross. And scripture explicitly points back to the flood as that is what your baptism symbolizes. That's what it's, what it's supposed to mean. And it's not that Christ was going to... He didn't substitute for you so that he could be not be ignored for eternity. This idea that that uh, hell is the absence of God's presence, like you're being sent to your room for eternity. No. I mean, it's punishment. It's a horrible, horrible place. It is eternal conscious punishment for your sins. It's just for the wicked. It's a just picture. Christ, we see this picture in the Gospels as well. Christ in the boat. He's asleep in the storm. And the, and the disciples are freaking out because this boat's about to sink. And they, they know. I mean... Hebrews knew. I mean, Jonah is a cautionary tale for why Jewish people do not go to sea. I mean, you, you just don't go out in the boat. I mean, Solomon was smart. What Solomon did was he subcontracted out all the ocean to go to another group of people. He didn't, you know, they didn't go to sea. But they, they knew when the storm came up, it was a symbol of God's wrath for your sins. So Jesus is asleep. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. The sea could not take him. If the disciples had only understood that, they could have relaxed. They could have, they could have sat down. They've got the perfect life preserver. Because he is never going down. Just grab him. He will never go down. And when Jesus walked on the water, it wasn't a circus trick. It was because the water could not take him. He came walking through the waters of the storm because the water could not take him until he laid himself down into it. And when Peter, when he called, when Peter, the only one who got out of the boat, you know, Peter had some problems, but he was the only one that got out of the boat. And as long as his eyes were on Christ, he could walk through the wrath of God. He could, he could not sink. But it's the same for us. When we take our eyes off of Christ and we start to see our sin, we begin to sink. Mm. We begin to sink because, yeah, I deserve eternal punishment. I, I deserve eternal conscious punishment from God for my sins. That's not a, you know, that's just the way it is. You know, I, I've... I've committed treason against the most holy God of the universe. How can I say that, well, all my sins don't deserve that bad? You know, what? The, it's not the quality of my sin, it's the quality of the one sinned against. Mm-hmm. He's perfect and holy. Mm-hmm. We, need to, we, need to, we need to focus upon God's grace. I mean, it makes God's grace so great for us. And, and all of this is connected back to do you have an appropriate view of hell? If you don't have an appropriate view of hell, then you don't know what the cross is for, and you don't know what your baptism is for. But Christ gave us that symbol of walking on the water. 
And then we see it again in Revelation. Uh, when, the, when, the, when they're gathered around the crystal sea and they sing the song of Moses, the sea is calm. Just described as calm. Revelation 15, 2-4 says, uh, It was the sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast sang the song of Moses, the servant of God sang, and the song of the Lamb sang, Great and amazing are your deeds, O God, the Lord Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O God, the King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteousness, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You know, then, it goes again, there's a verse in Revelation. If you haven't read Genesis, if you haven't read the whole book, this has got to be one of the strangest books, or strangest verses in the Bible. Revelation, uh, it's in Revelation 21.1. And it says, uh, we'll have a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven, the first old earth will have passed away. And the sea will be no more. You know, if you haven't read, if you haven't read Genesis, why is there no sea? There's no beach. You know, so in the new heavens, in the new creation, there is no sea. God's wrath is perfectly finished. There is no more sin. There's no purpose for a sea anymore. So we, it, it goes away. In the new heaven and new earth, there is no more beach. There is no more sea, and there is no more beach. Pat and I were at the beach. Um, uh, last a uh, couple weeks ago now, and uh, first day was it was pretty nice. The second day it was it was a mean nasty storm. It was a terrible storm. Uh, there were tornado warnings out, and, and I've also learned that when I take my wife is training when I take her to the beach, you must have a window that you can see the beach from. <laughs> the must the beach must be there, right out the window. It must be there. You don't go and. Uh, you know, five minutes from the beach, you must be on the beach. We were on the beach, and we could see the sea. And it was, it was, uh, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. It was really, a, it was, it was a very scary night. And these things were fresh in my mind. And you know, I was thinking back about, yes, that would be my just punishment. And I was snug and warm. You know, we had a stormproof door, and it was, you know, it was spectacular. The lightning and uh, storm was spectacular, but that was there was a symbol of my just punishment out the window. But I was baptized in Christ two thousand years ago through that. Sometimes we also forget too that you know you will run into uh, this false teaching of baptismal regeneration, and uh, there's still there's still congreg- or congregations or factions, some cults that teach baptismal regeneration. And uh, it's a false teaching that you're saved by water baptism. And uh, no, you're not saved by water baptism. You're saved by the baptism of Christ. And these these folks who have this idea of baptismal regeneration, they have a terrible time with the thief on the cross, the one that confessed Christ, because he couldn't get baptized. But Jesus said he was going to be with them in paradise. So he couldn't give the testimony of his water baptism, but in a deep and true sense, he was baptized in Christ that day on the cross. So were all the Old Testament saints looking forward. We look back, they look forward. There was Christ on the cross paying for it all. He said it's finished. On the cross it was finished. Uh, that was that was when he had paid the price. Only the God-man could have paid the price. So, it's a false teaching, but uh, it's beautiful to see even that false teaching, you know, that's that's the that's the value of folks who err and teach heresy, is they force the church to teach the doctrine clearly. 
And so when somebody teaches <laughs> baptismal regeneration and it's false, it forces you to look at the cross and see the truth. That yeah, in a way, I was regenerated 2,000 years ago in Christ on the cross. That was when my that was when my baptismal regeneration took place 2,000 years ago. I just give a testimony with my water baptism today, and that's why the church would allow for different modes of baptism because it didn't really didn't really you know if you if you found, if you get somebody in a river, great, get them in a lake, great. Got to use a tub, okay. You know, got to use a fusion, okay. You know. But you've got to give the testimony. That's the testimony. The real thing happened on the cross. That was the, on the real on the, on the cross is the re- reality of it. So uh, Jesus said he had a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. But he said it's finished when he, he you know, on the cross. It is finished. He said it was done. It's over. He's he's paid the price for all of us. So I want. I mean, I really want you to take home the idea that. Hell, which we hate to talk about, I don't like to talk about it. You know, I don't like to teach on hell. Uh, I, you know, when I'm coming, when I'm working through a book of the Bible, when it comes up, we talk about it. But it's not something we tend to think about a lot. But what I've what I've seen in the world today, in the American church, church in the United States, is that uh, we take it off of the website. We don't talk about it because people are uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. I heard somebody preaching uh, one of these, uh, someone who had deleted it from their confession of faith. I was listening to a message he was given. He says, well, you know, uh, we hear too much about the, uh, the wrath of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in America, you don't. Mm-hmm. You hardly ever hear anything about the wrath of God. Uh, that you, God's not angry for your sin. You know, you go to a church, God's not angry for your sin. He loves you. He loves you. He wants, you know. God, is, God will punish sin. He's a holy God who will not leave sin unpunished. He will deal with it. It will be punished. There will be no... That's why John the Baptist... You know, I can't imagine anybody... Well, Isaiah, but I can't imagine... John the Baptist, Jesus said, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Isaiah, when he had a revelation of God's holiness, he just, all he could do was panic. You know, and we were talking the other day about holy men. People who say they're they're a holy man. They have no idea. They have no idea. Someday they'll be confronted with God's holiness. Nobody who's seen God's holiness comes away thinking that they're okay. (laughs) Isaiah Isaiah shows that. He was arguably the most righteous man of his day. And when he saw God's holiness, he, you know, I'm undone. Uh, I'm about to be judged. Judgment's the only thing that I deserve. And God God took him. Uh, God healed him. God used him. So, don't forget why hell is con- is connected to the cross, and the cross is connected to your baptism. When you get baptized, it's not the baptism of John for cleansing; it is baptism for good as a testimony of a good conscience before God, as Peter says. That's your it's your testimony that I two thousand years ago had all my sins paid for on the cross. Jesus bore the wrath of God for me, and now I'm forgiven. That's really what I wanted to focus on today. Uh, normally, I don't do topical studies much anymore, but that was one that it, it's just—it's been such a burden as I've looked at church websites and mm-hmm. and seen the seen, especially the glossy and the showy and the well done, have left hell out mm-hmm. because it's just not—it's just not marketable. It's not seeker sensitive, but Jesus was never seeker sensitive. 
if you noticed. <laughs> Anybody that would call those listening to them snakes and vipers, uh, that's just not super sensitive at all. <laughs> let's, let's pray. Father, I do thank you for the grace that you call us into, Lord God. Father, I pray that we would never undermine your glory. Father, that whenever we see your glory attack, that we would always be willing to step up and to stand up and to say, say what you've said, Lord God, to teach the scripture, teach what you've taught in, in all these verses, Lord God, from Genesis to Revelation, what you've shown us, Lord God, that we would never back away from your truth. And Father, that that we would also, Lord, just have a deep understanding that when we share the gospel and we see a response, it is a birth, it's a new birth, it's a miracle. We're sharing the gospel with those who are spiritually dead, Lord God, and that apart from your Holy Spirit, we might as well preach the trees. Father, I pray that we would just have a, a deep, desperate understanding for our need for your Holy Spirit when we share, that we would never, ever think that we can argue someone into the kingdom, Father, that we would give all the glory to you, Father, from uh, your judgment, as we've seen in Scripture in hell, for the beauty of your testimony and the cross that all the Old Testament saints look forward to and all the New Testament saints look back to, Lord, the sufficiency of that, Lord. Only the God-man, it's good for his whosoever will. Whosoever will, Lord God. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to draw those in to the church, Lord God. And Father, we just thank you for the testimony that we've had in our water baptism. What a blessing, Lord God. What a full expression of what has done, been done for us. We in you went through the wrath of God, Lord, as Noah went through uh, the punishment for the earth. Lord God, as the children of Israel were led through the, the, the sea, and Father, as the sea closed upon those that you judged, the Egyptians, their persecutors that were ch uh, chasing them, Lord God, it's a beautiful picture of Noah, Lord God, being saved by the fish. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your grace. And in the unmerited favor, undeserved blessing in which we stand. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.